America is the only place where that happens. Uh, in Europe or anywhere else in the world, athletics are not tied to higher education the way they are here. Um, I think if done correctly, and I think Division Three schools like Westcon that don't give athletic scholarships, that operate under a philosophy that athletes should be treated and are like all other students, and that's the kind of athlete I was. I was a basketball player in college, did out a place like that at a liberal arts college in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think athletics are tremendously invaluable. You, you know, you 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 learn about working with people that you don't like. You know, you, you <laughs> pull for a common good. You learn about you know how to deal with adversity. You learn about the importance of discipline. Uh, athletes across the board uh, get higher grades uh, than the overall pop, pop population of of, uh, of college students. Hi, and welcome to the Compassionate Achiever Podcast. I'm Tracy Day. I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Chris Cook, who is a political and social science professor at Western Connecticut State University, founder of the Center for Compassion, Creativity, and Innovation, director of the Kathwari Honors Program. He's a Harvard Fellow, a Fulbright Scholar, and an ex-counterintelligence officer. And his latest achievement is the book, The Compassionate Achiever, How Helping Others Fuels Success. Hello, Chris. Hey, Tracy. How you doing? I'm doing great. So we have a really fun guest today. Are you kind of quaking in your boots a little bit? I see... He's not just a fun guest, but he's a guest that helped create the Center for Compassion, Creativity, and Innovation, but also you know, a key person for me in my professional life in terms yes. of a model of leadership and what you can, uh, can achieve in, in uh, higher education and academia. So yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. It's when um, you, you and I, I, I don't mind the uh, listeners knowing that, you know, uh, my wife, you, I, and we had a few guests, you know, mm-hmm. at your house on, on, on beautiful Kennewood Lake. And all I was thinking of is how great this was and the conversations we had. With ex- we got sim- some pretty deep combos we going. We did, tonight. and I want to say with our guest today, I had some. I was fortunate to have some of those types of conversations with him on things like the Center for Compassion and, and other other issues in education. So, you know, our our evening out at your house and on the lake reminded me of some of the cool times I had with him. So let's so get to him. This is let's timely. Get to so today's topic is compassion in higher education, and I think we have. The poster child for that, seriously. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, no pun intended. <laughs> Dr. James Schmatter is a former president of Western Connecticut State University. You were here from 2004 to 2015. Is that right, Jim? Uh, that is correct. Terrific. After earning a PhD in American history at Northwestern and studying higher ed administration at Columbia, he attained a national reputation as an innovator in business ed as an associate dean and director of international studies at Cornell's Johnson Graduate School of Management and as dean at Lehigh University and Western Michigan University. So welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Well, Tracy, it's great to be with you. And of course, it's always great to be with with you, Chris. Um, You know, spending time with you makes me wonder if I made the right decision back in 2000. <laughs> <laughs> so are you enjoying in- inter- your retirement? Uh, yes, I am. I'm, 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 I'm getting used to it. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we spend time uh, in the Finger Lakes region of upstate New York. We have a house close to Cornell that we've had for 30 years, and I'm, I'm there now. Oh, nice. And we, go, and, and we go to Naples, Florida, so, so I can work on my bed. On my bad tennis game. <laughs> there you in the, go. In the winter, so um, so, and I and I I may be captain of our team next year. This is a team where you have to have some kind of artificial uh, hip or knee or something <laughs> to, to play. It's, uh, some kind of fake parts in there that. <laughs> yes, that's right. Well, we're going to get into our, some sports yeah, things later good. too. But um, so I think one of the biggest questions, as president of Westcon, when you were here, you had to give your blessing to Chris in order uh, to create the Center for Compassion, Creativity, and Innovation. So I think both of you, please tell us what it is and why it's important. Well, let me start, you know, since I was an historian once, I guess I can't think that way. Um, you know, about the way it started, Chris came to me 
what, summer of 2011, was it? Yeah, something like that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, With this idea, he'd been thinking and reading uh, and um, watching other uh, scholars uh, trying to operationalize the idea of compassion. Uh, And um, he came to me with, with this idea, and I said, sort of, probably more diplomatically than this, well, that's a good idea, Chris, but, you know, you've got to make it less touchy-feely, and you, and you have right. to come up with a definition of compassion that is measurable, that is uh, uh, definable um, uh, in a more specific way than just, you know, compassion is treating people well, which, which of course, it is. And Chris went away and he came back and did that. <laughs> yeah. And I said, I, I really, you know, I, I didn't want you know, us to be spending time on, you know, on something. And because Chris certainly has a lot of other things on his plate. And uh, you know, he's doing a great job in building the honors program then. Uh, and I wanted to make sure this was something that uh, really had, had legs mm-hmm. uh, and, and, you know, had a constituency uh, and would be of interest and would advance um, the profile of Western as, as an institution of higher learning. And I think it came to do all those things, so, you know, in great, huge part through, through Chris's effort, but many other people worked hard as well in our, our, uh, our partnership with the good folks at the, uh, at the Buddhist Center uh, that, that, that brought the help to bring the, the uh, Dalai Lama to campus in 2012, all those mm-hmm. things, you know, got going. So that was kind of, kind of my side, you know, of it. Uh, as any, and we can, Chris and I went to elaborate some, but as you know, as any, uh, the development of any new interdisciplinary kind of academic program, uh, there are those who weren't so sure it was a good idea, and <laughs> we had to work our way through through those. And there are processes that universities follow, but we were successful in doing that. And a few years later, look. Look where you are. I have folks from you know from around the country asking me about Chris's work and the center. So I think it you know achieved that 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 goal of raising the uh, visibility of Western. And that's where you know for me you know the sign of a good leader is that you know, and he had this he had this belief in me, but he also knew that the idea could be better, <laughs> the <laughs> idea could be stronger, and he did it in a dig, way dig that inspired deeper. me. Yeah, mm-hmm. that said you know what, and he was right. I didn't have it all fleshed out correctly, and I. So, didn't what have did enough. you go back with them? So, him literally, it went back with you know what it meant to not only the university and academics and what it, that does for students, but also what it meant to the community surrounding uh, a university. And so, you know, I went back with not only numbers academically and, and with our, the definition I use now <laughs> everywhere, uh, and the definition that's in the book, but also you know, and it convinced you know the city of Danbury as well. The, I, I got numbers, economic numbers, about what happened when compassion is at the forefront of your thinking when it comes to any type of policy, not just education, but city development. What happens, just a real quick one, one of the big things is land values. Real estate values go up. Uh, and then if real estate values go up, what does that do to the local schools? Well, it attracts certain people, and so the local sure. schools start going up. So there's this kind of cool domino effect. But instead of falling down, it's building up things. And that's, that's the cool part about compassion. And so, you know, Jim made me, you know, really connect all the dots in a way. You know, you walk away from some bosses thinking you got no shot and, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean. Right. But with him, you know, you can, he's like, you know, this is a good, good try, good effort. You came about five yards short this time, right? <laughs> you, you, let's yeah. see how you do on fourth down now, right? You, right. right? And he allowed me to, to have that fourth down instead of kicking away. I was able to run the ball, and, and that to me is a sign of a good leader because he made my effort better. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, and Chris, you know, to Chris's credit, he came back because there had been times earlier in my career when people had come to me with ideas for academic programs. I think of a time back around 2000 when, when, when I was dean of Western Michigan, some faculty uh, members came to me, we want to have an MBA in e-commerce, you know, e-commerce. This, that was when it was just starting and, you know, before the crash of, of, of all those dot-coms. And I said, what's that mean, guys? And they got kind of, you know, frustrated with me. Uh, that's a mild way of saying it. They were actually <laughs> pissed at me. And I said, I don't think this is real. And as it turned out, everything became e-commerce. And, you know, we see, you know, we see Amazon now, and there's no 
differentiation, commerce and marketing is now right. key, you know. And, mm-hmm. and, and that's an example of people who didn't, you know, do what Chris did, went away and really took, you know, the thoughts I had, uh, you know, under advisement and came back with something different and, and, and better. So. Mm-hmm. And Chris and I had, you know, we, you know, he had some political challenges at Western <laughs> as well. And, some um, landmines to navigate there. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, there's one of the things that, that I don't know if I I don't know if I miss faculty senate meetings or not. Uh, kind of, I kind of goes both 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 ways. But that, you know, for folks who haven't lived in academia, that, that's a particular setting, and we had to uh, to get that program through uh, Western's faculty senate. And actually, some of the most eloquent people speaking for Chris at that time were students. If I yes. Which shows how he had built a constituency of folks who understood what this really meant. Mm-hmm. And what kind of programs are are you doing now through the Center for Compassion Creativity? So everything from helping homeless, but then in terms of helping homeless, we have high school students now working with college students, our college students here at Western. So the last project we had was a Worcester senior, uh, and they have a Compassion and Creativity Club there at, at Worcester, working with the college students here in, in our club. And what they did was really cool. Under one of our business leaders who were part of the advisory council, when, when Jim you know, was thinking about how I would construct this, I put other aspects in, like an advisory council of successful business people out in the community that can help me build compassion in terms of economics. And one of those is also just a, an amazing person himself, um, Dane Unger. Uh, he and his son and other students, they convinced hotels to give soap and mm. shampoo. They convinced dentist office in the area to provide free dental, like toothbrush and, and, and toothpaste and this stuff. And so we work on things like that. We work with uh, even animal care, <laughs> helping with animal shelters. You name it if there's a, an issue or a problem. And we get students. Students are the ones that usually bring it forward. They're the ones who say, okay, I want to tackle this. I want to address this. And I do something what Jim did to me. I said, okay, well, how are we going to do this, right? (laughs) It passes down. Yeah, exactly. And they come up with unbelievably cool ways of doing it that are also economically efficient, Mm -hmm. right? Not just effective, but also economically efficient because they're used to working with no money. And so they see right. ways of, of getting things done. They're like, okay, I didn't think of that. Yes, let's, let's, let's tackle it. And so, real projects, not just yes. fluff. Gee, no. We're doing this because it makes us feel good. I mean, this is really exactly. helping others. And then we also brought Peace Jam here you know, this past year, which took fifth grade all the way up to seniors in high school. And our college students were the mentors Mm-hmm. Uh, for all those students. So, and, and that's where our staff came in, people like Jessica Lynn, you know, who's the assistant director now for the Center for Compassion, who was a student uh, here, one of our top honor students. You know, she is stepping in and taking over a, a lot of uh, the issues and, and problems that, that inevitably follow mm-hmm. when you do something like this. And so there's so many cool tools. And, and Jim laid the groundwork for that, to be honest with you, that you know, we have a lot of staff and secretary support, administrative support that just jump in. They want to be a part of what we do. And, you know, you just want to take that and just, you know, have fun with it and ride with it. So, and you saw many of them at the Danbury Public Library. Yes. Right. At the talk. Yes, exactly. Well, Jim, thank you for making that a possibility then. And I mean, it really came down to you to, uh, to make it or break it, I guess. You mentioned a minute ago um, when you were at Western Michigan's Hayworth College of Business, um, yeah. you expanded their international partnerships in South and Southeast Asia, including yeah. <clears throat> an MBA program in Singapore. Did you not? That's correct, yes. So can you tell us about that? How important is that that we're turning to more collaborative international programs like those? Well, uh, that program was really started because when I was at Western Michigan, and I think it's still the case, they had one of the largest um, enrollments in undergrad business uh, of international students in the country. Hmm. Uh, we had programs uh, in Malaysia and in India um, and in Hong Kong where students did the first two years of our curriculum, our business undergrad curriculum on their campus, then came to Kalamazoo, Michigan, and finished. 
so we had we had literally hundreds of Malaysian students, uh, um, and, and and a number of Indian students, and we were starting a kind of starting a program in Pakistan when 9/11 happened, and that became kind of impossible. But uh, so so we were doing these things, and we and we had a lot of, of students from Asia. And it became clear that while we had some, we had a big business school, 140 faculty there, a huge wow. school, mm-hmm. uh, almost as big as Westcon, you know, yeah. as a whole uh, university. And while we had some international exper- expertise, it was clear that a lot of our faculty really didn't uh, understand all the cultural nuances, uh, and sometimes issues would arise, especially with. Uh, the Muslim students, and especially with uh, some of the mo- female Muslim students from uh, from Malaysia, who were very quiet and did not participate in the same way, and sometimes faculty thought that was, you know, took that as an academic weakness. It was, it was much more cultural. But anyway, uh, we looked around for a partner. Well, we decided that that one way to do this was to educate more of our faculty to make them more. Uh, international. So we really started the program in Singapore, which, if you know anything about, you know, Southeast Asia, is a mix of Malay and Chinese and other co- and uh, and South Indian culture, really. Yeah, although the Chinese are, are the, you know, the, yeah, the the economic and political leadership there. Uh, and you know, we we thought going there plus you know Singapore had then I think still has a, you know kind of a reputation of being Asia for beginners, you know. So you could send an you know an American faculty member who maybe had been to Cancun once or twice there, <laughs> and, and and he or she would be okay, you know, because mm. it's very modern, it's very clean, it's very safe and controlled, and you know, um, so 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 we did that, and we we were really doing it more for our faculty development than we were for the, I don't know, we, we, we would do it in cohorts of about 50 students, you know, a, you know, a time. And, uh, and we were, we were partnering with, uh, with a, uh, an organization called the center for American education, which, which owned private prep schools and also uh, did, did these higher education programs with us in the city of Buffalo and like Northern Iowa and, and, you know, in, in, in different fields. And I think it really, you know, it, 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 it heightened the understanding of a number of our faculty. I think of the chair of the Italian department, who was a good guy, but he was, he was in Chicago and, you know, I don't know if he'd been to Cancun or not, but he went <laughs> once and he came back and he loved and he wanted to go, you know, you know, every, cohort he wanted to go all of a sudden because this was you know this is very cool it took his wife yeah. <laughs> so, so 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 that's what we did there again there was actually purpose one piece of that i always saw in all my experience running international programs and i wish we could have done more at western but you know there's some issues in the state of connecticut to make that difficult mm-hmm. but i always wanted there to be some outcome it wasn't just let's go take it let's go take a trip and you know you know enjoy this but you know what are you let's Let's make sure faculty are involved, students are involved, and uh, you know make this a real uh, deep learning experience. Um, so, and, and you I did was something able to uh, do that in a couple of places. Yeah, at Cornell too, didn't you do something with their um, MBA program combining? Yeah. Um, yeah. At, well, yeah. At at Cornell, that was that was kind of an interesting program. Cornell had 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 been and still does, but then especially under the directorship of. Faculty member who was who was deceased now, um, who was decorated by the emperor, but for, for the work she had done in Japanese American relations, so it, it was a famous um, intensive Japanese program, and so we tied that to the MBA and to internships in Japan uh, for a limited uh, number of MBA students at Cornell who wanted to do that. They could either do the two-year option or do a three-year option and get a master's in Asian studies. But they did pretty much a year, all of them did a year of intensive Japanese before they, they got into this. And this was back in the 80s when the Japanese were going to take us over. You know, mm-hmm. So it was very hot topic. And, and it was very interesting going over to Japan and um, you know, lining up the internships because the Japanese companies are really very, very reluctant to take you know, gaijin foreign, you know, American interns. 
and uh, we had to sort of work work some you know the context we had. We had a lot of Japanese students at Cornell then, because this was a time when Japanese companies were sending their their rising staff to American MBA programs, mm-hmm. and so we we had kind of a kind of a kind of a, a uh, an edge there. We could say, well, you know, you have we got a lot of applicants uh, from all over, but if you you know you at the Industrial Bank of Japan will take our internship, we'll look very closely at the students you're you know sending to us and. You know, we did those kind of things, and it was it was it was it was kind of it it, it got it got you know a lot of attention in certain circles because nobody else was doing something like this. And it's really how I got interested, got involved in international things because we had got a a, a grant from an organization called the U.S. Japan Friendship Commission, and the people who wrote the grant promptly left the university. We were sitting there stuck with it, and I, and I was asked by the dean if I wanted to run the program. I knew nothing about Japan, you know. Hmm. So, you know, that's when my liberal arts training in terms of being able to learn things came about. And for about probably six or seven years of my life, I was in Japan maybe four to six weeks a year. And I had language at a certain level that was, you know, maybe a five-year-old, not a three-year-old. And uh, it was fun. (laughs) And is that pretty much the wave of the future, do you think? I mean, as our world becomes, you know, so much smaller and yet in some ways so much more divided. Mm-hmm. Right. Those those kind of programs were really precursors to, in business education at least, what is just so common. I mean, there are networks and there are collaborations. Uh, here at Cornell, at the Johnson School where I used to work, uh, they have uh, robust um, partnerships in China with leading universities, with a leading Canadian university uh, in Latin America, Plus more, and, and they, these are these are like joint degree things, but they also have all kinds of partnerships, and that's the way it is throughout uh, business education now. And I think it's true because you know, so many of our enterprises are global and are made up of people of different cultures, and and you need to work with them. There's this great example when I was at Western Michigan, we were doing all this international stuff, and I met. One time was one of our graduates who was a successful uh, businessman in West Michigan. And uh, he said, oh, you know, my son is, is studying international marketing at, at the Haywood College, and he loves it. He thinks it's great. He's learning so much. He had a great experience. But there's just one thing. You know, a lot of your faculty have accents. Oh, <laughs> and I did, no. I did, I did, you may, I, I, he may run into that in the future, you know? <laughs> oh, my gosh. You've got to get past that. And, um, you know, I don't want to talk about politics, but you see trends across the Western world um, where not everybody's so sure that's a good idea anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think you know the Asians get it, the Chinese get it. They're they're being very, they're very very assertive in terms of partnerships and you know uh, reaching out. And I think that we have to continue to do that as well. Higher education is, but I think you know the sort of you know votes you see like like Brexit and some of the you know some of the other things in Europe. And we we'll talk about the United States, but yeah, you know, well, kind Tracy. of go the other direction. And I don't think that. I don't think that's on the side of history. Yeah, I don't mm-hmm. think so either. And Tracy, you know, Jim's leaving out something. He, he did bring some of that to Western. So uh, I remember him starting a presidential uh, grant uh, competition, and the faculty could submit ideas for overseas research with students. And mm-hmm. so I was fortunate to get one of those grants with another professor in history, and we took, you know, eight students over with us to research on the ground water privatization in, in Vietnam. Mm. And those students to this day talk about that as one of the most defining experiences in their higher ed- in education period, right? So we spent a month and a half, you know, going through Southeast Asia and understanding, interviewing industry leaders, politicians on water privatization in, in, in Vietnam, but also in Thailand and Cambodia. And it was powerful, and it led to a research article for me, led to an edited volume for the other professor, and all the students had hand, 
firsthand research, interview skills on the ground. We ran into problems, of course, because when you're in a foreign country, um, things happen, right, right, that you don't plan. And so they learned resiliency. They learned responsibility. And, and you know, he brought that, Jim brought that to uh, the university. And so I, I never forgot that because it's one of the ways we connect. And every single one of those students went on to grad school. Isn't that, so, I mean... Well, and, and, you know, that, that was one of those, you know, it was unfortunate that I, you know, we didn't have the money to keep on doing that, that presidential grant. I mean, you know, with the, the program that um, Chris's colleague, and my former colleague, Galina Bakhtirova, runs in Spain in various places, and the one that her colleague, Al Vizcar, runs in uh, Latin America, those were started out of those grants as well. So, mm-hmm. And those, those continue. Yeah, they're amazing. And so he always, brought that. He brought that here. I always say you cannot let your education get in the way of your education. Somebody, <laughs> somebody told yeah. me that once. And I was like, well, what does that mean? But they they said, you know, there's one thing to be in a class and, and learning like that. Obviously, we need that. But you get such an education from traveling and different experiences. Like you said, you know, when you have boots on the ground, you learn all kinds of other skills that from problems that arise and just how the world, the rest of the world thinks and how they do things. And so back to you, Jim, you did a study, um, a very influential study from what I understand, called Leadership for a Changing World, the Future of Graduate Management Education. Can you give us a thumbnail sketch of what that said? What what was that well, study that was that was based, that was back in the early 90s. And it was really based on um, a look at business education then and a concern that a lot of um, stakeholders, uh, especially corporate hires, especially external stakeholders, the business world, had about the way students were being pre- prepared uh, for careers in business. And there was a a sense that um, business education was losing its relevance in its um, ambition to become um, a serious academic research area, um, you know, that that rivaled physics or that rivaled, you know, um, the, the hardest of the hard sciences. And there was a concern that faculty and business schools and MBA curricula were focusing too much on uh, quantified research articles and not really preparing students for their careers and what they were going to face in terms of ethics, in terms of communication, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, of problem solving, in terms of working in teams, all the things that since, in the, you know, in the 25 years since then, have become pretty common in MBA education. The, the, the report I was involved in was one of two that came out about you know, 1990, 1991, that really were kind of, kind of clarion calls to, hey, folks, it's time to take a look at this and uh, you know, see if we're really doing this right. And I, you know, I think it had a little bit. Well, um, and you mentioned, too, about um, earlier when you were saying you were down playing tennis on your special group. (laughs) (laughs) So sports are obviously important to you. Um, Apparently, you chaired the NCAA Division III President's Council, and you were a member of that executive committee. How do you respond to people that say that athletes get special treatment? Do you think that's the case? And... Is, is that important to have ath- athletics in a, a higher education? Um, well, you know, you know, America, you know, America is the only place where that happens. Uh, in Europe or anywhere else in the world, athletics are not tied to higher education the way they are here. Um, I think if done correctly, and I think Division Three schools like Westcon that don't give athletic scholarships that operate under a philosophy that athletes should be treated and are like all other students. And that's the kind of athlete I was. I was a basketball player in college, did out a place like that at a liberal arts college in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think athletics are tremendously valuable. You, you know, you, you, you learn about working with people that you don't like, you know, you, you <laughs> for a common good. You learn about, you know, how to deal with adversity. You learn about the importance of discipline. Uh, athletes across the board, uh, get higher grades uh, than 
the overall pop, pop population of of, uh, of college students. Now, a lot of that's driven by women's sports. The women really blow it away. And it's not the case for men's basketball and football. Uh, you get into Division One. Uh, I have real concerns uh, as someone who loves sports uh, and was involved in, in them in various ways about what's happened to big-time Division I football and men's, men's basketball, especially football. It really sort of uh, becomes a question of, is a fine university like my, my wife's undergrad alma mater, Ohio State, a university, or is it a brand? You know, and I think mm-hmm. that's the question that we really have to, you know, have to ask ourselves. When you look at the salaries that coaches make, when you look at uh, what appears to be a focus on, um, you know, on sports by student athletes that, that you know, that, that, that feel that getting an education isn't important. I, you know, I really cringe. I was driving up from Connecticut a couple of weeks ago listening to some sports show on serious radio and they were talking to, to college athletes, football players. And a couple of them openly said, well, we know we're in a business here. Mm. Oh boy. That's, mm-hmm. I just cringed, you know, because that's, I don't think, I don't think that's what it's supposed to be, but it's so popular and there's so much money. Uh, I think we're at a real interesting tipping point on issues like, uh, are we going to pay, student-athletes, you know, uh, at Division One schools. And what does that mean for all students who love sports and want to play sports for all the right reasons? Uh, you know, it's something I've thought a lot about. I was, I was on the NCAA executive committee when the, uh, the, the Penn State case with Jerry Sandusky came down, mm. uh, where we had to, you know, devise a penalty for the way the university reacted to um, you know the what what turned out to be the, the proven you know allegations of sexual mis, misconduct, and uh, it was very eye opening and not a series of events I'd like to go to again because it, it did not sort of uh, you know reinforce my 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 views of the, the nobility of how we all think. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's a tough one. That. Um, because it, it comes down to, I'm assuming, um, money, too. I mean, well, of course, athletics. Of course. You know, the, 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 the Jerry Sandusky scandal has cost Penn State in total payouts, fines, lawsuits, close to $200 million. Mm. Whoa. Wow. That's... And, uh, you know, and that's what can happen when one guy goes, you know, goes goes bad. But there's so much on the line. I mean, college coaches in big-time schools make so much. Yeah. But again, you know, people think about college athletics and they think about that, but all of Division Three and Division Two schools like Westcon and Trinity and Wesleyan and, you know, Williams, it's very different. And, and I think it's, you know, it's a very, you know, it's a very good thing. Um, so, anyway, um, yeah. that's, that's for me. And tennis player with a bad knee. <laughs> Who loves basketball? Right. Who loves right. It? But, you know, and he, he, you know, Jim brings up an important point. So in our honors program here at West, Western, we have, you know, the women's basketball team, for example. Half of their team is in the honors. Oh, really? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And, you know, the coach, you know, focuses. They are real, honest, scholar athletes. And I, reason, I put scholar first is that they see – their scholar, their scholarly activities, first and foremost, and the coach understands that, and the coach is focused on on helping you know them succeed in the classroom, not just in the court on the court, and that that's the thing that's a, a, a th- it's it's easy to work with the coaches. So when coaches ask me to come in on a weekend or to meet a student that is a potential student, heck yeah, mm-hmm. I'll come in, I'll introduce the honors program, and because. You know, I think those types of students build a program, a solid program. Because as Jim's saying, they bring other attributes, not just, you know, their intellectual acumen. They bring a, a kind of a moral, ethical idea. They bring in this resiliency that, that I, I love so much and grit and, and courage. So, yeah, and, and he's right. It's, it's overwhelmingly so far, it's been the women's side of, of athletics that have brought in. Interesting. Uh, yeah. And, and well, it, I, I, Go ahead, Jim. I, I did note. 
I, I, excuse me, but I mean, I, I did know, you know, to give a plug to Kim Resick, the coach, who <laughs> Chris and I both, both consider a good colleague and friend, yes. that uh, her team was, um, you know, visual. objectively, they were, they had the eighth highest cheap, cumulative GPA in the country. Country. Year, hmm. of, all, of all division threes, women's basketball. Coach Kim but, is something else. Yeah. Wow. I mean, you know, higher than schools you'd think, you know, would be you know, much higher. I mean, so, yeah, that was like a 3-9 something was there. <laughs> That's team. impressive. Yeah. Yeah. But it goes back to so, that balance of, you know, yeah. education versus the sports. And so that's where I think the division one kind of gets askew. Absolutely. You know, and you look at something that, you know, I gave a talk down in Florida last, last year about this and people, all my audience who are these, you know, guys who are interested in sports, you know, alumni of all the top schools, they just wanted to talk about, especially about the case of North Carolina, where, you know, (laughs) you know, North Carolina, Chapel Hill for years offered these, secret fake courses to student athletes mm. for years. I mean, hundreds of athletes, maybe thousands of athletes took them. And you see something like that and you, you know, your cynicism meter goes off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so so anyway. another thing that you've brought up um, that seems to be important to you is the role of the arts in economic development and business. And so tell us about that, that, um, how does that fit into to the whole economics of things? People can say, well, you why know, do we I, need them? No, I think it's for, it's it's often forgotten, um, you know, the the role of the arts. And and you know, I first became aware of this. Gosh, this goes way back. Uh, one of my first years at Cornell, we had a program on the economic impact of the arts, and I forget who spoke or what the cases were, but it was, I said, well, this is kind of interesting because, you know, we talk, we think about economic development in terms of manufacturing and we, and we think about it in terms of, of what may be, uh, you know, historical um, industries that aren't coming back and the arts can offer so much. And depending on, on you know, on how you, you know, you define the arts, I mean, certainly there are, Deep artistic skills are required to create video games. Look at the size of that industry, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and so, you know, I think that when when people tend to say arts are a the, the arts in a community are something that's nice to have, but well, you know, it's not really going to help us, you know, be a world class city. Uh, or really, you know, missing the point. The, the work of the uh, uh, urban um, Specialist Richard Florida, who Chris probably knows his work, talks about the creative class and how you create vibrant cities by having not just people who are uh, economically smart, not just not just financial types, but you know people who are creative. They create more interesting cities. They create people uh, places where uh, creative, smart people want to live. And when smart people are all together more good things happen in terms of economic development. And the arts plays a big, big part of that, you know. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's um, you know, I think it's important to, to consider that. I, you know, you know and, and, and what I think what really gets me now is that it's really, um, you guess me, that's very, very, very articulate. What, what <laughs> worries me now is that, um, we think of economic development in terms of for-profit companies. You know, Connecticut, for example, it's, it's controversial, I know, gives these big subsidies to companies to stay in Connecticut or to come to, to Connecticut, manufacturing companies, financial services companies. But I haven't seen an equally comprehensive look at how can we build the arts? It's more, well, if you want to do that in New Haven, that's great. You want to do that in Danbury, that's great. You want to do that in Hartford, that's great. Rather than saying, it's going to be a strategy of ours. Um, so if I, I was this, this, this summer, I mean, it's different. I, this is probably unfair comparison. But I was in Vienna this summer, earlier this summer. And talk about a place that's just full of history and art and culture. Now, granted, they have 
number of centuries to fall back on. But it's really, it's really elevated there. It's really turned into an attraction. It's turned into an economic driver in ways that you don't see that much in the U.S., I think. Mm-hmm. No, I would have to agree with that. That, But uh, again, we go back to money talks. Um, now, you developed a new um, master's in management of technology and lowered MBA tuition by 22%. And I think that was at Lehigh, right? Yeah. Um, producing a 70% increase in enrollment. Do you think that's the wave of the future? Does higher education need to ensure... Well, that it's that was, affordable? You know, you know, again, that was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I could, you know, again, there, there were some doctors who just, you know, didn't really think that was appropriate. But, but I just felt that we, we were overpriced for what we were. You know, we were charging the same thing. And they didn't like this at all. They were, our tuition was the same as the working school. And I said, guys, we're not the working school, okay? Mm-hmm. Where uh, basically an MBA program for for working adults, we're very good at that, uh, and we did some, you know, we did some analysis, and it turned out that it you know it really worked, and it's happened at other places since then. Uh, I think it's a trend that's growing a lot. I never thought of that as a precursor to what's happening now, but you look at the free uh, the free tuition model for s- students who meet specific specifications uh, in SUNY. Uh, you look at Rhode Island's doing free, free college. Now Tennessee is doing something like that. So you're seeing this happen that, you know, college, you know, higher education has gotten really extensive. And it's gotten extensive in part because we haven't been able to um, collect efficiencies in the basic thing that we do. Maybe it's from, from technology. Technology tends to just cost us more. Uh, Chris, Chris would agree with this, but it's hard to uh, sort of uh, develop big economies of scale for the thing that Chris does so well and other good, uh, strong faculty like Chris do so well, and that's interacting with individual students and changing their lives. You know, there, there was this big interest in these MOOC, these, these, these massive online free courses. That The enthusiasm is cool because there's not a business model that, that works. Uh, so having a government entity or a board of trustees that has the courage to say we're going to lower tuition and uh, you know hopefully attract and you know make ourselves more affordable for for students, I, I think it's definitely you know a way of, you know a way of the future. And I I'm not sure if you should I thought about that way you know way back then you know when I did it, but it was you know you know it was clear that if you're you know, if you're not getting customers because you charge too much relative to your product, um, you can change your price, you can change your product, and sometimes it's easier to change the price. And so I think you were on to something there too, Jim, way back when, in, in October 2014, Connecticut actually, you know, a special law came into effect for corporations, special for social entrepreneurs, right? Those are people who want to have a mission-driven, purpose-driven organization, institution, and it's called a B Corp. And yes, exactly. Yeah. Right. And so that's, that's a hopeful sign that I don't know how the problem is. I don't know how many of those are actually, you know, taken off yet, but the benefit corporations, right? So these are Tracy, these are corporations that have, um, kind of a social environmental, um, impact or purpose and they put that mission even ahead of profits Mm -hmm. but they do make profits as well and so that's a that's one hope and i think jim was way ahead on the curve again Mm -hmm. uh, on on that and and that that's just starting to be talked about now and it's 2017 right Mm -hmm. it's just starting to be talked about yeah well, I think we need well, to address something because students are graduating with hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loans. I mean, how do you dig yourself out of that? No, you you know you don't. And and I think there's there's there, there is there's another side of you know of tough love or reality that's you know that's needed. You know, there, there's an article there's an article in the Times today, which if you read, it's about this this, this theater program at Harvard that's being um, being paused for three years. They're not going to take any students. And it's a program that's not really a Harvard degree. It's Harvard Extension. 
I see. And uh, it's the American Repertory Theater. And students are coming, you know, going in there to be actors, and they're coming out with $85,000 or $100,000 in debt. And you, have, and you have to say, you know, understand, if you want to be an actor, there are consequences, you know, there, there are economic <laughs> consequences to that. You know? And and don't view student loans as you know as free you know as free as you know as free money. I was appalled to myself, mm-hmm. you know, and a whole variety of ways, you know, partially, partially you know, at the institution letting this happen. But um, so absolutely, you know, and and I, I think also, um, and maybe this is a, this is a controversial thing to say, but I think there are. A number of young people today, especially traditional age students, or there are some at least, who are going to college and really don't know what the product they're buying is. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're going there because they've they've been told that you know that college, that getting a college degree increases one's lifetime earnings. That's true. You know all the data. Show that, but, but you've seen seen them at the, at the institution we worked at, Chris, and I've seen them, you know, most places I've worked, where they really don't understand what this is. They don't take full advantage of it. They would probably uh, be happier and more productive and more fulfilled in another setting, um, you know, an industrial apprenticeship or or, or something else than coming and saying, well, I guess by default I'll major in communication because everybody else is. And they yeah, have these saying, like yeah. mini degrees now, don't they? What do they call it? It's it's actually, it's not like a trade school, but it's basically that's what it is. What is it called? Yeah. Well, the, there are certificates that you can earn, you know. See, see I, you know, there's, there's a huge labor shortage of skilled technical people. Mm-hmm. Across all industries, um, you know, and and we aren't fulfilling that by having young people come and major in psychology. Right, you know, right. <laughs> probably the most popular major on most American campuses. Yes, uh, you know, and so I, I, you know, I said that to my to my colleagues in the you know in the psychology department. They probably wouldn't like that. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't work there anymore. So, yeah. Uh, but, I have a son that was a psychology major, and my husband always used to say, what are you going to do, open a psychology store? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, no, and, I, and I'm not being, yeah. I'm being facetious, No, and, you know, and, and I, I was having a conversation last week. We were hiking up in Minnesota with some friends of ours. And um, one of the friends, he's a very successful developer. He owns six, six resorts up there. He majored in great books at Notre Dame. Wow. Totally liberal arts, you know, liberal arts with a vengeance. Yeah, the great books, yeah. And, and Bob and I were talking about how much career-focused education you need versus, versus liberal arts, both of us feeling that you need both, you know, uh, mm-hmm. to some degree, you know. Uh, and, uh, you know, but, but, there, but there is a balance, you know, and I think in today's economy, in today's world, young folks should uh, develop some kind of saleable skill, be it be it, be it, be it you know in a minor or expertise they get from you know from study abroad, so they can say, well, I you know I can go to to, to Portugal and you know I have this 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 specific you know language capacity that would help me do something in Portugal or Brazil or or, or some kind of IT skills or you know, you know whatever some, something to get people to get your foot in the door, but long term. The communication and the problem solving and the question framing and all those meta skills you learn in liberal arts, I think, are terribly important. They certainly were for, were for me for forty years. Wow, I we always um, throw out this question towards the end of our broadcast, Jim. Um, do you think that compassion is a value, a virtue, or a verb? A value of virtue, virtue or a verb. Yes. That's an interesting thing. You could probably play around and divide and and um, define it as any of the three. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would I, I would I I would pick a verb. 
Right. I would pick a bird. Why? Because yeah. and, and, and I do that because when people ask me about leadership, mm-hmm. I always say leadership is a verb. Mm-hmm. And you know, to be a leader is to do things. It, it, it is to act. Yes. Uh, it is to demonstrate your values through your actions. And I think you could say the same thing about compassion. Yes. I mean, one of the things that leave me not terribly impressed with a lot of the lead of the literature on leadership, which I one part of my life read a lot and taught, is that too many people I treated it as a noun. Yes. Mm-hmm. I think it's a verb. Yes. Uh, and, and, and I guess I'd say the same thing for compassion. I mean, one can talk about how compassionate they are, and one can, can refer back to their own religious tradition and, you know, whatever it is, and find elements of compassion. But for me, you know, unless you're doing it, you know, <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's not as, as meaningful. And, they, and maybe you don't call it compassion. I mean, you know, when, you know, I think, Quite frankly, a lot of things that Chris has pulled together here are, are kind of what I was raised in Aussie and Harriet, Southern Ohio, back in the 50s to say that's the way you treat people. And I think that uh, the big thing for me about compassion with Chris, the work he's doing and others are doing is I think it is, a, it is an antidote to the transaction-oriented society we've become. Um, And I think, you know, and I think so many of our problems that we wrestle with um, in income inequality, uh, job loss, and then the the associated issues of, you know, opioid addiction, all the way, come down to a focus, uh, a set of decisions that we make about uh, our lives and our activities that are transactional. In. I'm going to do this because in the short term, it feels better. It helps. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going, you know, I am going to move my plants offshore because my shareholders uh, will say that's great for this quarter. And Mr. CEO, you're, you know, you're a genius, and you're you're going to get a bit, you know, bigger, bigger bonus. The next quarter comes, you got to move another plant off you know, offshore. Um, that kind of tr- transactional focus that doesn't contemplate the externalities uh, of how it affects people, I think, is what the compassion work gets at. It makes you s- s- stop and you know, step back and you say, well, in the long term, is this the right decision for us in the longer term? Not the quarter of the year, but in the years or decade ahead. So I, I don't know. Yeah, I wanted to get that that point out because I think you know, when I think about the work that Chris has done, that's that's the kind of kind of way I think about it. And being a director of, of a publicly traded company, boy, I see that transaction focus all the time. Oh, well, Jim, what we've so appreciated you taking the time out of your busy schedule to do this, and you certainly are the compassionate achiever and leader, and you have been, and you still are, and we so appreciate your time today. And Thank inspire you. many of us, Jim. Absolutely. And to the listeners, well, that, go ahead, Jim. Well, this was fun. I hope this is of some, some value to... Uh, somebody you know, besides <laughs> the three of us just to be a pleasant, pleasant conversation yeah. well and I, I think you've given us a lot of ideas and, and for the listeners out there you know we, we hope that this is another episode where the ideas help you to unleash the compa- compassion achiever within you so that you can unlock success so thanks Jim thanks Tracy and until next time thank you be sure and find us at WCSU Media thanks again Jim My pleasure. Thank you.